Good morning. Please be seated. After you find your seat, if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, Paul made a mistake, said he's one of the ministers on staff. That would be former minister after that last announcement. Uh, I, I said, I got gooned by Paul Smith. Who does he ever goon? Uh, I'd like to share with you this morning, we're going to do a little things a little bit different. If you're first time here at Christ Church, my name's Mark and I'm one of the ministers and I've asked uh, Chad Ragsdale, who is one of our members, uh, as well as a professor at Ozark Christian College, to join me this morning as we look at a uh, very unique but powerful passage that can be easily misunderstood if we try to do too much or a different thing with it in Matthew chapter 24. So as you open your Bibles or apps to that particular text, I want to give you a little background on the credibility of why I have Chad up here. First of all, I know several things about Chad, and he's preached many, many times on this stage over the last four years, and uh, so grateful to have him back. Uh, Chad loves Jesus, he loves the Word of God, and he loves God's church. And to me, that's all the credibility someone needs to be able to share what God is doing and teaching them in the Word. But he's also got some deeper character uh, supports or characteristics that I greatly appreciate. He loves the Cubs, Notre Dame, and the Bears. And so because of that, he can preach anytime he wants, as far as I'm concerned, and a deeper level of credibility. But in all honesty, since I can get my computer here, in all honesty, what we'll want to be able to do this morning is walk through in a more casual, conversational way Matthew chapter 24 and its significance not only to the audience of Jesus' day, but to us as well. On the screen behind me is, a, is an email address that this morning during our conversation and Chad's explanation of some of the concepts, if you have questions that you would like to ask about this, this subject, please send them to this email address. Uh, next week, I'm going to conclude chapter 24, and as I conclude chapter 24 with some parables that Jesus uses to illustrate his points. As I do this, if there are questions that are raised today that I could answer next week, I'd be happy to. If we can't answer all the questions, we're intending in the month of August to have a Sunday night special gathering where I'm going to bring Chad and maybe a couple of others, uh, Shane Wood and some others on this stage, to talk about some of the end time or eschatological passages about the end things and what it might mean to us today and what do we take from it. Because you can gloss through passages like this and think, well, it's really not for us or it doesn't really matter. It does. And it's recorded by the Holy Spirit so that we can understand what the significance of it all is. So that's going to be our setup today. I'd like to begin by reading the first three verses of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all of these things, Jesus asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There's something that you notice here is unique about the disciples. If you've been with us uh, the whole 71 weeks that we've been going through this series on the teachings of Jesus, you'll notice that the disciples went from asking no questions, faking like they knew what was going on, to waiting for very strategic moments to ask, to toward the end of this time, you'll notice the disciples are asking more specific and bold questions because they understand that the intensity of Jesus' teaching is ratcheting it up. Uh, Chad and I have been talking about this since he's preached for me a couple times this summer as well. People will come up and say, wow, you really went after that text. Well, it's not us going after the text. It's Jesus being more intense as he's entering into the last weeks of his ministry. The context behind this is we're not talking about a month away from the crucifixion. We're within days now. 
And Jesus is telling his disciples very specific things that he wants them to remember when the turmoil hits. And they're asking him clear questions. They ask him three questions. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the world? Those appear to be three questions. Chad's going to give us some insight on those in just a moment. But let me uh, ask him the first question. And I need to define a term I'm going to use. It's not because you don't understand them. In case you don't, have never used this before. There's a term called hermeneutic, which is the study of a written text. Uh, We normally apply hermeneutics to the scriptural text, but it can be applied elsewhere. But there's a concept called hermeneutic, and and Chad teaches about worldview and and apologetics and hermeneutics, and so this is within his his sweet spot. So I'm going to ask him, what hermeneutic or worldview must we keep in mind to accurately process this particular teaching of Jesus? Right. Um, Matthew chapter 24 is is a, a passage that there's been a lot of debate on, there's been a lot of confusion about um, throughout, throughout the Christian centuries. Um, it's not an easily tackled or understood text. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because it's, it, Matthew chapter 24 is a unique type of literature. Uh, it's a unique genre of literature. It's actually got more in common with the book of Revelation than it does have in common with other parts even of the gospel of Matthew. See, it's not like the parables of Jesus, the, the stories that Jesus told. It's not like other teachings of Jesus, like in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's distinct. It's different. Matthew 24 is a different type of literature, uh, oftentimes called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature has, like I said, some things in common with Revelation or parts of Daniel in the Old Testament. And, um, and it's important that we, that we understand how to read apocalyptic literature because we read different types of literature differently, don't we? We read Revelation differently than we read Romans. Just like if we go to the newspaper, we read the comics section different than we might read the sports section, uh, unless you're a Cubs fan, and then it's all kind of something to laugh about. Um, but So you read different types of literature differently. So let me just give you two different things to keep in mind as you read literature like Matthew 24. And these are very, very important principles to keep in mind. The first principle is this. Apocalyptic literature is full, I call it the comic book type literature in the New Testament. It's full of very vibrant, vivid images, pictures, and symbols. And if you're going to understand a passage like this one, you have to understand the symbolic nature of it. Uh, and there's a good example of this in, uh, in the chapter. If you look down at verse 29, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So he mentions the sun, the moon, and the stars. And what you may not realize is that this, this grouping of images is very common in the Bible. Isaiah, Joel, Acts, Revelation, several different times in the Bible, these images are grouped together, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And when Jesus makes mention of them, he's not literally talking about something that's going to be happening with the sun or something that will literally be happening with the moon. These images in the ancient world were associated with political kingdoms and rulers. And so when Jesus talks about the signs in the heavens, what he's really indicating is there will be political upheaval there will be a turning over of empires and kingdoms. Um, So that's the symbolic nature of this language. The second thing, quickly, the second thing that I want you to keep in mind, and it's very important with this chapter, sometimes when we read passages like this, our tendency, and it's, it's it's a natural tendency, but our tendency is to immediately reflect on 
how does this apply to us right here, right now? Almost as if Jesus is talking above the heads of his disciples. He's talking past them. But what I want you to remember is Jesus was immediately addressing his disciples. There is an immediate context here. He had something specific to say to them in their day. And we can't understand the relevance of the passage for us. We can't understand the meaningfulness of this passage in our world until we first understand what it meant in that world. And so let me just illustrate this very quickly as well. The Jews, um, in some of their literature, they refer to the temple in Jerusalem as the navel of the universe. Or in other words, it was sort of the center of the universe. They even believed that the dimensions, the physical dimensions of the temple were meant to illustrate or imitate the dimensions of the universe. And so Jesus has just got done saying, the passage that Mark read, Jesus just got done saying, hey, see this magnificent building? And it was magnificent. See this magnificent, huge, holy building? It's all going to be laid to waste. It's all going to be destroyed. I cannot overstate how shocking that would have been to his audience. It would sort of be like me or Mark standing up here and saying, you know what, within this generation, the entire United States of America will be desolated. Hmm. It will be destroyed, laid to waste. This would probably bring some questions to your mind, wouldn't it? Like, maybe like, when and how is that going to happen? Well, in the Jewish worldview, to hear that the temple was going to be destroyed is essentially the same as hearing that the world is coming to an end. Those were sort of the same thing. And so they asked Jesus three questions that to their mind would have been basically the same question. Tell us when this is going to happen. Tell us when the temple is going to be destroyed. Tell us about the sign of your coming. Now, be careful of assuming that that's referring to the second coming. Remember, Jesus hasn't gone anywhere yet. So his, his disciples are asking, tell us when the, what this word means is a king coming to rule. Tell us when you're going to start ruling. Tell us when you're going to start reigning. And then thirdly, tell us about the end of the age. And for the disciples asking the question, to them, it was basically the same question. But to us, it's, it's really not the same question. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. We've broken up Matthew 24 into using a term that Jesus used, birth pains. Uh, we're going to try to illustrate and walk through the text this morning using three, uh, three images of that. The, the initial contraction, the continuing contractions, and then the birth. So if you can kind of follow Matthew 24 in this, in this order, it, it might make a little bit more sense. So let's read what Jesus describes as the first birth pains, uh, verses 4 through 14. To, to the question, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There, there is a component in theology, as, as Chad has mentioned and will, of the now and the not yet. That in prophecy, there is the moment that applies to this moment, and then there's a lingering effect or continuation that can go on in the future. So in spite of all of that, and knowing that that's present here, what warnings still exist today that we must pay attention to? Right. Um, 
Apocalyptic literature has a very clear purpose. It has a very clear intent. Um, it, it may be obscure literature to understand, but it's very clear in its purpose. The purpose of apocalyptic literature is to inspire God's people to persevere, to be watchful, to patiently wait for the arrival of their king to make things right, to fix the brokenness, to finally, ultimately, uh, fix the brokenness that exists in our lives and in this world. That is the call of the book of Revelation. That's the call of a passage like this. God will come and intervene. Our job is to patiently endure. I want to actually read um, what I think is one of the most important verses in all of uh, Matthew 24, and Mark's going to talk about this more next week. But if you see up all the way down to verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore keep watch, because you don't know on what day uh, your Lord will come. And the key, the key point there is to keep watch, to be watchful, to, to patiently endure. And I want to read another passage. This is from actually the book of Romans. In Romans 24 and 25, or 8, 24 and 25, he says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope uh, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And Mark mentioned this, this concept of the now but not yet. And this is a huge issue in, in the entire Bible. And here's, here's what it essentially means. If you were to ask me, if you were to come up to me after church and say, Chad, are you saved? I would have no problem answering that question. It's a very easy question for me to answer. Yes, I'm saved. I'm saved not because of anything that I've done. It's not because of my goodness or my righteousness. I'm saved only because of what Jesus has done for me and through me. That, so yes, I'm saved. I am, I, am, I am liberated from my evil. I am liberated from sin. I'm saved. However, I still, on a daily basis, I still struggle with the persistence of sin and brokenness in my life. I still experience the persistence of sin and brokenness and evil in this world. I mean, just look at the news. Every day, it's the same story. Sin, brokenness, and evil still exist in this world. So we still wait for the final consummation, the final resolution of all the promises of God. And so we live in this period between the now and the not yet. And I think that the destruction of the temple, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, the destruction of the temple was really a foreshadowing or an illustration of, of a theme or of a, a historical truth that will be repeated on a grander scale at some point in the future. So our, point, our purpose is to patiently endure. Uh, in verse 14, Jesus said, "...and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." What are we to make of that? Let me first of all talk about what that doesn't mean. I don't believe, and I'm pretty convinced of this, I don't believe that what Jesus is making reference to here is this idea that through our evangelism um, or through our, our making of disciples, we can speed up the return of Jesus. I, I, I don't believe that that's what he's making reference to, that, that God is sort of up there in heaven and he's waiting, he's biding his time until we go out and we do our work. We, you know, the more people we evangelize, the closer we, we bring Jesus to his return. I have a problem with that on a theological level because it gives us way too much power and authority in this process, as if the return of Jesus depends on my work. Um, 
No, Jesus does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. Um, that's not my purpose. And it also, it also renders meaningless these passages where Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, the twinkling of an eye. Um, so I don't believe that that's what the text means. Here's what I think it means. Throughout this entire section, especially at the beginning part of Matthew 24, he says, keep watch. Don't be deceived. There will be these birth pains, pains anticipating the the, the final completion. There will be wars, and it's kind of a nasty list. There will be wars, rumors of war, famine, disease. There will be persecution. There will be false messiahs. He says these things are going to happen. And they will happen more and more frequently. You shouldn't be surprised by this. These are birth pains. But he also, in the context of that, he also says that the gospel will be heard uh, throughout the entire world. And what, what we need to realize is, to a first century person, the world consisted of the Roman Empire. That was the world. That was the, the world. From the east to the west, that was the world. And by the end of... Uh, or by the year 70 AD, it was literally true that the gospel had been proclaimed from the eastern boundaries of the Roman Empire all the way to the western boundaries of the Roman Empire. All of these things that Jesus talks about, from wars, false messiahs, persecution, famine, even evangelism, all of these birth pains that Jesus makes reference to were literally fulfilled in that generation. So that's why in Matthew 24, Jesus makes this statement that this generation will not pass away until you've seen all these things come about. That was actually true. All of these things happened within 40 years of Jesus making these statements in Matthew 24. The second piece to this is the continuing end. Um, it's the continuing sharp pains of birth. We're titling it here this morning. It's found in verses 15 through 28, where Jesus starts to focus in and hone in more. Uh, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the leader or reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. The question pertaining to this is something that I want us to be careful of as a church. That, you know, he used the word uh, crackpot in first hour, and it's an effective word. There's a lot of theories, and a lot of us read this text, and we start a punch list of things. That as soon as all of these are done, then I'm going to get ready for the return of the Lord. And he's, he's warning us to do the exact opposite of that. So in light of this further pain... Uh, Is Jesus referring simply to the fall of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, a historical fact, to something greater or a combination of both? Right. I I think it is a combination of both. But I think the primary reference in this chapter, or at least the beginning portion of this chapter, uh, the primary reference is to the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically the temple. And this, again, this is a historic 
fact that it happened in the year 70. See, what happened was the Jewish people during this time period and even before this time period, they were in almost a constant state of rebellion, sometimes open rebellion, sometimes more passive rebellion. Um, But it was rebellion over those empires and those kings who were reigning over them uh, because they they believed that they were God's people destined to uh, reign over the promised land themselves. And so they were always in this constant state of rebellion. And um, in the book of Daniel, it talks about, Daniel anticipates what he calls an abomination that causes desolation. Something that would happen in the temple that would cause the temple to be desecrated and, 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 uh, and uh, it was an abomination. And this actually did happen. It happened under the reign of the Greeks where a Greek king came into the, the Jewish temple and desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig in the temple. And this was the abomination that caused desolation. It also caused an open rebellion and revolt amongst the Jews. Jesus, in this text, Matthew 24, he's telling his disciples, this is gonna happen again. This pattern is going to repeat itself. This time, not with the Greeks, it's gonna be with the Romans. Ro- the Roman military is going to come in Jerusalem and the the temple is going to be desecrated. The temple is going to be destroyed. And this did happen. There was a Jewish, a major Jewish war that started around the year 66. And in this, in this year, the, the, the Roman uh, military came into Jerusalem. They circled the, the, the temple area and they eventually came into the temple area. They desecrated it and they destroyed it. And Jesus, he actually says in this text, see, I have told you ahead of time. And he's warning his disciples here. He's like, when you see this starting to happen, don't be surprised by it. Instead, you need to run. You need to flee from Jerusalem because it's going to get really, really, really bad. So what he's talking about in this chapter, I think the the first point of reference is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But like you said, this is an illustration also Mm -hmm. of a pattern that repeats itself all the way through history of wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, persecution. It's constantly repeating itself. And there is a major transition that happens in this chapter. And there's some debate about this. It's either in verse 29 or in verse 36. But there's a major transition in this chapter where Jesus talks about, he moves from talking about events that preceded the destruction of the temple to start talking about events that we still anticipate, events yet to come with his, his second coming and his judgment. And the way that I, I've been illustrating this is, is like this. Imagine that you are driving um, to the mountains in Colorado, okay? Some of you maybe have done that this summer. Um, you're driving to the mountains in Colorado, and so you drive through Kansas, who one of, one of my friends calls Kansas the world's longest uh, on-ramp. Um, so you're, you're driving through Kansas, sorry for that, and then you finally get to the border with Colorado, and like, I, I remember the first time I drove this, I'm like, Colorado, sweet, mountains, right on the border, right? But not so much. You still got a few more hours to go. And then finally, eventually, you see the mountains out there in front of you. And from your perspective, driving to the mountains, all of the mountain peaks kind of look like they're layered right on top of each other. Like all the mountains are literally on top of each other from that perspective. But if you're flying over the mountains, you see that those mountain peaks that looked like they were so close together are actually separated from each other by sometimes, you know, dozens of miles Um, And so you see the separation between the mountain peaks from that changed perspective. Jesus' original audience, 
they saw really very little distinction between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. But from our perspective, when we read Matthew 24, we can identify, oh yeah, that was, that was the destruction of the temple. But then he starts talking about events that clearly refer to events yet to come, the end of the age. Jesus used imagery several times now in going through the teachings about lightning in contrast to the false messiahs. And he used the imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, give us some insight as to what we're to do with that. Um, lightning in scripture is a very important symbol. Um, Lightning, when it's used in scripture, always pay attention when lightning is used in scripture because lightning uh, designates the dramatic working of God in his creation, the dramatic working of God in history. Uh, Think about Moses on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. He goes up to Mount Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments, and we're told that Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke and darkness, but it also was enveloped in lightning. And this, this shows God's dramatic action in history. And so when Jesus, in Matthew 24, talks about the dramatic showing of lightning from the east to the west, he's contrasting that to these other false messiahs that that arrive on the scene and say, come to me, come follow me, I will offer you salvation, I will offer you comfort, I will offer you liberation, I will offer you hope. Jesus says, pay no attention to them. When I come, it will be readily apparent. It'll be readily obvious. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be no mistaking my arrival. And by the way, when Jesus is talking about these false messiahs that will appear from time to time, that did literally happen um, in the early centuries following Jesus' life and ministry, but it still happens today. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and I'm not just talking about that crazy, fanatical preacher that stands up and says, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm back, how's it going? I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about all of the other people and institutions that exist in all the world around us that are whispering in our ear, hey, if you follow me, you'll have comfort. If you give your life to me, you'll have peace. If, you're gi- if you give your life to this, you'll have salvation. Those are nothing more than false messiahs. And Jesus is saying, you need to tune out that noise. You, you need to be very aware that when I return, when the true Messiah shows up on the stage of history, you will know who, it, who I am. So let's talk about that. Let's look at the third piece of what Jesus is doing here and talk about the arrival of the king. It's found in verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of the Man will appear in the sky, and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So knowing that there's a lot of suggestions and imagery and all that's related to this, as followers of Jesus in this period of waiting, uh, what are we to hold on to and learn from this? I think that... Maybe, uh, well, I'll start with this. Maybe one of the most important things is actually found, and you made reference to this, but it's actually found down in verse 36, where Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I think the first thing that we need to take away from this study of Matthew 24 is that it's not up to us to try to determine or to try to calculate through this prophetic algebra to try to figure out when is exactly Jesus going to return. One of the classes that I'm privileged to teach every once in a while at Ozark is a class on end times predictions, 
which is a fascinating study of human error. Um, because what you discover throughout all the centuries is there's always been there's always been this tendency within the church for certain people, and the motivations are probably, there's many different motivations, but there's always been this tendency for different people to stand up and say, I've got it figured out. I know when it's going to happen. I know how it's going to happen. And I got this check sheet and I know, okay, you know, I, this happened in Jerusalem or this happened in Iraq. And, you know, you just go down the list and boom, we know exactly when it's going to happen, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus says in this text. Jesus says, that's none of your business. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's not your business to try to figure out when something is going to happen that I don't even know is when it's going to happen. Your job is to make disciples and to faithfully and patiently endure as we anticipate the promises of God. That's our mission. That's our purpose. So the first thing that I would say is that. The second thing that I would say is, um, as far as a takeaway, go, I want to go to the book of Hebrews really quickly because I think Hebrews might help us here a little bit. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews compares our experience as followers of, of Jesus in this world. He compares our experience to the experience of Israel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was suffering under slavery and oppression in Egypt. And finally, God hears their, their calls. He comes and liberates them through, through Moses, and they're rescued out of slavery in Egypt. But they don't immediately go into the promised land, do they? Instead, they go through a period of wilderness wandering, a 40-year period of wilderness wandering. And it's, and it's in that wilderness wandering period where endurance and perseverance is required. And so I would say the message for us today, as we live in this in-between time, where we have received the promises of God, we've been saved through Jesus Christ, but we still anticipate the future promises of, of heaven and eternal life, our job right now is to patiently endure and to wait in hopeful expectation. Christians should not be full of despair. You look at the news, though, it's easy, right? It's easy to look at the news and think, oh my goodness, things are just so horrible. Things. And it's easy to give in to thoughts of despair. But Jesus warned you that these things would happen. Jesus warned you that human history is going to be full of all sorts of nastiness, like wars, famine, disease, persecution. It's going to happen. And so is evangelism, too, by the way. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. Instead, we should learn to wait with hopeful expectation for the promises of our king. Would you help me express appreciation for Chad? So one of the questions you may send in is, what? What are you guys talking about? I wanted to hear about Jesus. We did. As God is apt to do, he gave me a great illustration yesterday. We were sitting at the pool and... There were some ladies in the shallow end of the pool just floating and sitting and talking and trying to get brown. And our eight-year-old decided that's no fun, and so he cannonballed right near them. And they all gave him the stink eye, and I said to him, Braden, don't. A few minutes later, he did it again, and I called him over, and I said, I told you not to. Don't splash them. If they wanted to be underwater, they'd go underwater, go play in the deep end, have fun with your friend, but don't get them wet. And then he turned around and did it again. I called him over. I said, what about that didn't you understand? And he said, I'm sorry. And I said, when I ask you to do something, just please do it. A few minutes later, Isaac and I were sitting there visiting. And a few minutes later, less than four, he launched a cannonball into the shallow end. He hit the water and he came up and he looked at me. And I called him over and he goes, Dad, I remembered in the air. 
true story. He remembered in the air. A little too late to remember, but he remembered. And for him, that's quite an accomplishment. How does that relate at all to what we've talked about today? I think it relates significantly. This world's not going to get better. There is no government that can fix evil. And so I I don't say that to bring despair. I want to challenge you. When life gets hard and evil seems to be winning, when there are rumors of wars and wars and famine and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis, when all of that's hitting us, let us remember what Jesus said. These are just the birth pangs, but it is going to give birth to a new kingdom. And the king of all kings is going to come and he's going to restore all that which has been broken and shattered. And he can do it. You and I can't. No financing or government or plan that we'll develop can fix what we've shattered. Only Jesus can fix it perfectly. So in the middle of your despair, when you jump and go, oh, I shouldn't despair, land well. Jesus Christ is still Lord of all. And that's not blind faith. That's living faith. Because For as often as you eat my bread and drink my cup, you proclaim my death until what? Till I come again. I don't know about you. I'm betting my life on it. How about you? Jesus will come back. And even when it makes very little sense to me sometimes what he's saying, I know this. He always brings me hope. He's saying to us, hold on. Hold your faith until the end because it is by faith that you're delivered. Right, church? Some of us today don't have faith in Jesus Christ. It's not because you're bad people. It's you haven't seen the evidence. You've not silenced the world and listened to the words of a Savior who can deliver every promise. I challenge you, go to these tables that have lamps lit on them. We'd love to meet you there, not to get you to make a decision, but to give you the evidence we have in our hearts as to why you should follow Jesus Christ and why he's the only faithful one. His resurrection is all you need to know. A God who can raise Jesus from the dead can fix this world. I'm betting my life on it. How about you? This morning, we're going to sing to that king, to that hope, and to that peace. Let's stand together and worship our Jesus.